This is Condopedia. Here, we talk about everything related to condo law in Ontario, with hopefully some humor mixed in. Hi everyone, just a quick note before the start of this episode. In Cheryl's section, there is a mention of a meeting checklist that was shown during the presentation. Obviously, we can't show the document within this podcast episode, but if you go to our firm's website, dhacondolaw.ca, and find the accompanying blog post, you'll find the link to that meeting checklist within that blog post. Thanks, and now here's the episode. Welcome, everyone. It's September 22nd, second day of fall. Can you believe it? So welcome to our fall condo crunch, our monthly seminars that we do pause for the summer because we think everybody needs a little bit of break from uh, constant education. So today, back by popular demand, we are going to be talking all about meetings again. Uh, we did a session in the spring with meetings and we got a lot of lot more questions, a lot of requests to talk about more of the pitfalls, the traps, the considerations uh, that we need to be thinking about when we're doing meetings. As we know, we're still primarily in the virtual world and David's gonna talk about some of the reasons that we probably will be keeping virtual around for the long term, but we're also seeing some in-person meetings and a few hybrid meetings. So what we're gonna talk about today are some of the tips, tricks, considerations, pitfalls, uh, challenges, all the things that you need to be thinking about, which can apply in all of the different environments that you're facing, whether it be virtual, hybrid, or in-person. And we'll talk about some of the considerations that may be different for each one as well. As a quick reminder, there will be a podcast. Turn, this will be turned into a podcast in a couple of weeks after today. So if you do have to jump off a little early, not to worry, you can listen to this session as well in a few short weeks where it's when it's uploaded. Also, quick reminder, we don't take any live questions today. This is our opportunity to try and share as much information as we possibly can. Uh, in half an hour to an hour. So we set ourselves 30 to 30 to 60 minutes to try and get as much information out as we possibly can, which means we also don't take questions. But don't worry, we always have a Q&A session in the queue. So if you do have questions, don't hesitate to send them to us and we'll try and incorporate them into our next Q&A when that comes around. So let's get ourselves started. We're a couple of minutes in and it looks like our numbers are just about stabilizing. We have a lot of attendees today. I'm really excited about today's session. We have some great speakers and we're gonna start off with David. David, hi, go ahead. And uh, I think you're gonna tell us all about the introductory side, the benefits of, of virtual meetings, what we've learned, where we're going, et cetera. So I turn it over to you. Thanks, Nancy. Yes, yeah, so the three considerations, challenges, or pitfalls that I will be discussing today are uh, one, scheduling, two, the method of meeting, so virtual or in-person, and three, glitches or issues of non-compliance that could come up, such as uh, it missing documents in the meeting package. So I'm going to first talk about item number one, scheduling. So this is probably one of the most important items to keep in mind of. You want to make sure the owners can attend the meeting so they can obtain quorum. Otherwise, then you have to reschedule the entire meeting. When you're doing scheduling, look out for dates that may conflict. Be proactive in the process. The owner's meeting might still be a few months away, but individuals that you want to attend the meeting, such as a lawyer or the auditor or the engineer that is overseeing the repair work, 
those individuals who you want at the meeting may have different availabilities. So uh, it's a good idea to consider starting the scheduling process as early as possible. When you're doing the scheduling, it's also a good idea to keep into account holidays. If there are any holidays that are applicable during the scheduling process, either during the notice or even during the scheduling of the owner's meeting itself, keep those things in mind because that could affect the timelines associated with sending out notices or receiving proxies, et cetera. And finally, when you're doing the scheduling, keep also in mind the relevant uh, obligations that is within the condominium corporation's governing documents and also with the act so that the, any notices are, that are provided are provided in compliance with those authorities. I'm gonna move on now to talk about my second item, which is the method of the meeting. So everyone knows in our current world, we've seen a lot of change in this area. Due to the pandemic, we were forced to make changes to our meeting styles very quickly. Consider for each specific community that you are a part of, the potential pros and cons for the various options for a method of meeting. As we know, there is the virtual meeting option. This is the type that we have been using with very good success during the pandemic. The benefit of having a virtual meeting is that it is more convenient for many people. It's also, which means that it makes it more likely that sufficient owners attend the meeting and achieve quorum. At our firm over the past two years, we've seen great success with virtual meetings, increased attendance and greater owner input on decisions. We have also noted that some owners who may have previously not been able to attend such a meeting due to their circumstances or some or perhaps a disability are able to participate through this virtual forum and get their voice heard. On the financial point, it can also be cheaper for some condominiums, particularly those who may not have enough space within their property to hold such an owner's meeting. If you hold it virtually, the condominium corporation wouldn't then need to go out and rent a, rent a meeting space, which saves costs. Another area where this saves costs is with respect to when you need to have someone like a lawyer or an engineer or an auditor come in. In an in-person meeting, sometimes those kind of experts charge certain fees with respect to travel. But if the meeting is virtual, then these travel costs would not be applicable. Now, in-person meetings are now also an option. And this is the primary format for owners meeting for the past several years. So condominiums are certainly familiar with running in-person meetings. The pros of in-person meetings is that it allows owners um, to see each other and to have a more socially engaging exercise. But owners meetings that are in-person also have on, on occasion additional financial costs such as the rental of a venue for the owner's meeting and if an expert is required to be in attendance, sometimes the travel costs are incurred as well. Finally, it, is also, it can also be more difficult to obtain quorum for in-person owners meetings because some owners may not want to spend the time to travel to the venue site uh, to attend the meeting, or they may not be able to attend the meeting due to personal circumstances, such as, for example, travel out of town. And we've seen in many instances in our virtual owners meetings where owners who are out of town are able to attend because um, they don't have to actually go to a specific venue. 
And then also, you also have to keep in mind that there may be members of your condominium community who uh, may be immune compromised or have some other health concern or may still be uncomfortable attending large group gatherings. And so uh, an onerous meeting that are in person may not be able to accommodate those concerns, but a virtual meeting might be able to allay such issues. Now, I have talked about both in-person and virtual, but there's also an approach that we've kind of seen is a hybrid meeting approach where the owners have a choice to attend the meeting in person or virtually. And this leaves the choice of whether uh, they wanna choose either option to the owner. So it creates the most amount of flexibility. Obviously the issue with this option is that it can mean a larger administrative burden for the condominium corporation and their property manager and it can be more complicated to set up, particularly when it with, with respect to votes, because you want to avoid a situation if you're having a hybrid meeting where you're double counting ballots, or you wanna make sure you wanna to try to have a system in place where you can avoid that double counting situation. And lastly, because of the additional administrative burden, it can also mean additional financial costs. Now, one option that could be considered for a hybrid style is to have a virtual meeting that deals with the business side of the meeting, but then have an in-person in social event after. And this, is, this could be an approach where you get the benefits of having the business I dealt with virtually, but also allowing an opportunity for owners who want to um, have a social gathering later on to have that opportunity. Ultimately, there's a lot of options and each condominium corporation can uh, consider determining which option works best for them based on their own community's needs. The last topic that I'm gonna discuss are issues with non-compliance or uh, package glitches. And the, the biggest example of these are, for example, when no financial statements are available in the, in the meeting package, or if someone who is scheduled to speak doesn't actually arrive at the owner's meeting. These kind of issues can be very frustrating particularly if a lot of effort was made to schedule the owner's meeting and finalize uh, the other logistical issues that are associated with scheduling such a meeting. Luckily though, we all understand that mistakes can happen and not every glitch, whether that is in the meeting package or during the meeting itself, means that the meeting would need to be rescheduled or redone. For this topic, the answer really is depending on, dependent on the issue at hand. If it is a minor issue, so for example, a missing document in the meeting package that is to be provided for information purposes, sometimes the solution is to simply resend the package with the issue rectified or an addendum to the package. For these types of glitches or issues of non-compliance scenarios, there can also be some prep work that could be done to plan for such situations. One example that I could think of is what if an important speaker is scheduled to speak at an owner's meeting prior to an owner's vote on an issue? So for example, I'm thinking like an auditor for the financial statements of a corporation and an AGM, or a lawyer for a legal issue, or perhaps an engineer for a repair project. If that person shows, doesn't show up, what could, be, what could be done? Now, such situations luckily could be planned in advance. Now, these kind of more major situations, the remedy could deal with these would really depend on what happened. Um, but the solution 
can be in some occasions to adjourn that portion of the meeting that's affected by the non-compliance and have it revisited at a later time when the non-compliance has been purged. Let's take, for example, the financial statement uh, and the auditor. According to the act, the financial statements must be, uh, need to be included in the notice of meeting and presented at the meeting. If the statements are delayed, the corporation may decide to move the meeting at a later date to allow the delivery of the statements. However, if the, statements, if the financial statements were sent late, it is possible to still have the meeting and either permit the questions to be submitted to the auditor at a later date or to adjourn that specific portion of the meeting. Now, of course, no one can plan for every eventuality. So for those who may be concerned that a serious issue does come up at a meeting and it wasn't planned for, here are my thoughts uh, to keep in mind if that situation comes up. Number one, keep calm. Regardless of the issue, there will always there is a solution that can be found. Number two, consult your experts. See if uh, and to see whether the meeting can proceed and how the issues could be dealt with. If the issue is significant, see if the other aspects of the owner's meeting could be dealt with first. This way, at least the time uh, the the time for the owner's meeting can still be positively used. And then. Lastly, if it is still doubtful that the issue could be resolved during the meeting in a way that protects the integrity of the meeting itself, then consider adjourning that part of the meeting so that the issue could be rectified and then brought back before the owners at a later time. Most of the time, the owner's meeting will go off without a hitch, but for the issues that can come up, it is always a good idea to try and plan ahead also consider reaching out to the condominium corporation's legal counsel if assistance is required to plan for such scenarios. And on that point, Nancy, that is all I have for this last point. Fantastic, David. Thank you so much. And I think your, your final comments, David, about potential glitches, you talked a lot about being proactive, being prepared. And I think that leads us very nicely into our next speaker today, Cheryl. Cheryl's going to start us off with exactly that topic. <laughs> being proactive. So Cheryl, with our matching screen, I'll turn mine off and I'll turn it over to you. All right, thanks, Nancy. Yes, so I'm going to be going over a couple of topics today uh, with the first being proactive, um, also disputes about proxies and records of meetings. So diving right into being pro proactive, every person running a meeting will have different strategies that they find effective to prepare for the meeting. One of the key ways that I find helpful in being proactive is to have a checklist of requirements for the meeting so that you can be prepared for various issues that might arise. During today's session, we're speaking about a number of considerations, challenges, and pitfalls that might arise. So being aware of these possible issues and planning ahead can often help. So as I mentioned, I have a checklist that I have prepared that I find um, helpful in planning uh, annual general meetings, but it can also be tailored for other types of meetings. So I'm just going to share my screen quickly to show you an example of the checklist I have, and I'm going to go briefly through it. Now, keep in mind that any checklist that you have would need to be tailored for your specific condominium corporation, but there are a number of items that I would make sure to include that every condominium corporation includes. First of which is being including the date that the meeting must be held by, which is within six months of the fiscal year end. 
I also think it would be helpful to note the date that the audited financial statements will be ready so that you can plan your meeting date out ahead. Several months before your meeting, uh, your anticipated meeting date, you want to reach out to panelists that you require at your meeting. This includes legal counsel, auditors, minute takers, engineers, anyone that you might need present at the meeting to help run the meeting. And you want to reach out to them, confirm the dates. I know that a lot of people can get booked up really far in advance. So the earlier that you can plan your meetings, the better. As David mentioned, scheduling and the notice of meeting can be a possible issue. So in the checklist, you could include a summary of the notice requirements in the corporation's bylaws so that you know when the meeting package must be prepared and sent to owners. So you just want to check your condominium corporation's con comprehensive bylaw for those notice dates. Also included is a section where you can note any possible issues or items to be addressed at the meeting. So this is going to change year to year on what might arise. And then you want to note people that you will need to speak to, uh, speak to in order to um, present these issues. For example, if the corporation is considering passing a bylaw, you're going to want to note this. And I have this set out in here. So you're going to want to note that the corporation is interested in passing a bylaw and you want to make sure that you have a timeline set out for the preparation of the necessary documents so that you can have them in time to put, uh, add them to the meeting package. And you want to also check that box on the preliminary notice. So having this on the checklist will help you be prepared when you're preparing these documents. All right, what else I have on my list is include a reminder to yourself to have your owner list readily available in an Excel format and note the units that are owner occupied to be prepared for any owner occupied votes. Set a reminder for a week before the meeting to reach out to any experts attending to remind them of the meeting. You can set a reminder for the day of the meeting to check for any proxies. Sometimes someone will put them in the office mailbox and you wanna make sure you go check the mailboxes one last time for any paper proxies. Check for owners that are in arrears so you ensure that everyone in attendance at the meeting is entitled to vote. If you're chairing the meeting, have your notes or a script ready in advance that reminds you of key issues that you're gonna be discussing during the meeting. Um, this, as I'll say later, um, including a note that to confirm how the recording of the meeting is going to be treated would be helpful in your script. And then depending on how the meeting is being held, there are some other issues that you would need to be prepared for. As an example, for virtual meetings, make sure that the proxies have been reviewed, that the polls are set up and electronic ballots are set for the meeting, that you are prepared to address technical issues that might arise during the meeting. For in-person meetings, you want to make sure that the people overseeing registration know how to review the proxies and provide ballots based on the proxy if required. You want to make sure you have all your ballots printed and that you're prepared for any issues that might arise, including like a tie when you're um, having an election and how you're going to deal with that. For hybrid meetings, you're going to want to make sure that you are prepared to deal with registration, both virtually and in person, how you're going to deal with voting and taking questions as well. So by sitting down many months before the meeting to note key deadlines, issues and reminders, you can avoid some of the issues that we are going to discuss today. Another key to being proactive is communication. So if you're aware of an issue, 
being prepared and getting out in front of the issue by communicating with owners is often helpful in lowering emotions during the meeting. It can also save time in the meeting if you address anticipated questions during the reports made in the meeting. Okay, I'm just gonna stop my sharing here and I'm going to go on to my next topic, which is disputes about proxies. So proxy forms, <laughs> these forms can still cause confusion for the best of us. The forms are essential to the meeting, but they can cause some disputes if there's confusion about the proxies. Some of the common issues I see with the proxies are that the forms aren't filled out properly and dealing with what arises there or that they're not properly accounted for during the meeting. So I'm going to touch on each of these issues. With respect to filling out the proxies, um, no doubt they can be the proxy forms can be confusing. We often see um, to help avoid this issue is um, including information in the meeting package on how these forms can be filled out. I know that the CAO has some information with respect to filling out proxies that owners can look to. We at DHA also have a simplified version of proxy form that in our view meets the requirements under the act. Um, for virtual meetings um, another or um, in-person meetings, you can also use a uh, electronic platform in advance of the meeting to send out your notice packages and proxies. So you can collect electronic proxies and that can reduce user error. We generally use Git Quorum as our background platform for meetings, and this system allows for electronic proxy submission, and that helps minimize user errors. Despite best efforts by the manager or the board in trying to have the forms filled out properly, there can still be errors. In order to try and manage forms that are not properly filled out, it's helpful for meeting packages um, to encourage owners to submit their proxies early. This will allow the meeting chair the opportunity to review proxies in advance of the meeting. And then if there's an error on the proxy, the proxy giver can be contacted and asked to correct any errors on the proxy. Often when I review the proxy, if the owner's intentions can be clearly determined from the proxy, minor breaches with respect to the form will not invalidate the proxy. However, sometimes there's significant errors on the proxy form. If there's a proxy without a proxy holder or a proxy that's not signed, these are issues that I'd want to send back to the proxy giver to have reviewed or corrected. And this can be really difficult if proxies are received the day of the meeting. Okay, so the other issue that we often see with proxies is a misunderstanding of how the proxies are to be counted. The proxies have various options for the type of authority that the proxy holder has. The proxies will either count for quorum only, allow the proxy holder to vote on procedural matters during the meeting, such as approval of minutes, or allow the proxy holder to vote on all business subject to any instructions set out in the form. So this can be confusing for the person that's holding the proxy if they don't understand what they're entitled to do with the proxy. If an owner defers their vote to their proxy holder, that proxy holder will get ballots or an additional voting share if you're using an online platform. If the proxy giver puts specific voting instructions on the proxy, the proxy will count as a submitted ballot for those items. This will be You'll need to review this in advance and confirm to the proxy holder at the outset of the meeting what their 
um, entitlements are during the meeting just to avoid confusion. And by reaching out to confirm to the proxy holder how the proxy is to be counted, you can reduce concern and confusion. For virtual meetings, the background software will generally track what the authority of the proxy holder is, and you will just need to ensure that the votes are properly tracked and that you communicate with the proxy holders. You can do this by just sending a private message to the proxy holder to confirm whether they have deferred votes or whether the proxy is counting as a ballot for the meeting. For in-person meetings, proxy will, proxies need to be reviewed at the registration and ballots will need to be given to the proxy holder for specific items if the votes are deferred. Okay, so that is a brief touch on possible issues with proxies. For my last topic, I'm talking about records of the meeting. So we often see records of the meeting leading to some disputes because there can be confusion about what constitutes a record of the meeting and what owners are entitled to review. So what we have learned um, from the Condominium Act itself, the regulations and decisions of the court and condominium tribunal, we know that records of the meeting include approved meeting minutes. These are minute, the minutes from the last 12 months would be core records and minutes outside of that would be non-core records. All instruments appointing a proxy or ballots for a meeting of owners are records, are records of the meeting and records of the corporation. And you're re required to hold these documents for at least 90 days unless notified of actual or pending litigation. And then third, any records that are set out in a bylaw of the corporation would be considered records as well. So just remember before producing any of the um, records I just mentioned, the corporation must review and redact these records in accordance with its obligations under section 55 sub four of the act. This is especially important for proxies. I will say that's one thing that the proxy form does right is having one entire portion that can be redacted at once. So it makes it a little easier to redact the proxy. The regulations under the Condominium Act specifically address proxies and production of proxies. So check regulation 13.11 if you get a request for production of proxies. So what is not considered a record then as it relates to meetings? Again, the court and condominium tribunal have made decisions related to requests by owners for access to documents or recordings. Based on these decisions, we know that draft minutes of meetings do not form a part of the corporation's records. Um, these documents are not actual records of the corporation until the meeting minutes are are approved by the board or owners at the next meeting. Emails between board members about an issue do not form a part of the records of the corporation unless they're referenced specifically in the minutes of the meeting. A minute taker's notes are not a record of the corporation. And finally, the big issue, the recording of the meeting with the turn to virtual meetings, there's been a lot uh, more, I would say, questions about whether a recording of the meeting forms a part of the records of the corporation. And so recently, the Condominium Authority Tribunal determined that the records, uh, the recording of a meeting was not a record of the corporation in that situation. To ensure that 
a recording does not form a record of the corporation, it is important to confirm at the outset of the meeting that the recording will not form a part of the records of the corporation and that any recording of a meeting will be made available only to the minute taker to assist with the preparation of the minutes. This will reduce any arguments that the recording could be a record. All right, back to you, Nancy. Fantastic, Cheryl. And Cheryl, we had a flurry of activity. I think several hands went up and we did have a, a chat request to me about your chart. Clearly your chart is looking to be very helpful. So I'll just send a quick reminder to everybody that the chart will be included as part of the podcast. So stay tuned. A couple of weeks after today, we will get a podcast out with the chart. Uh, I do see some other hands going up, but folks, just to remind you, we don't take any questions during our condo crunches. If you have any questions, uh, hopefully you can submit them for our Q&A in the future, another condo crunch or, or another Q&A session, sorry. Today's condo crunch, we just uh, try and give information. Cheryl, thank you so much. Get that chart, uh, making make it look perfect because it's going to be sent out as part of our podcast. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Nance. Okay, terrific. So now turning right over to our next speaker, Jessica. Jessica, before you even get started into a meeting, before you get into the substance, I think there's some rules you got to be thinking about. Eh? So I think Jessica's going to talk to us about laying down the ground rules and then a couple of other key issues. Over to you, Jess. Absolutely. Thank you, Nancy. So for my time with you today, I'm going to be talking about meeting ground rules, when to set them and how to use them, ballots and voting, what to watch for, and scrutineering for both virtual and in-person meetings. We'll start off with your meeting framework and ground rules, which includes determining what rules of order you'll be using for your meeting. Formal rules of order will assist the chair and assist the process to ensure a fair and transparent meeting. In most cases, you're gonna be dealing either with Robert's rules of order or Nathan's rules for society meetings. The chair will need to familiarize themselves with their chosen rules before the meeting and understand how to use them. Now, generally speaking, we recommend that condominiums adopt Nathan's rules as they were derived from a corporate background. They're generally more appropriate for condominium corporations and other nonprofit entities. They're quite easy to follow and understand, and in most cases will be the preferred rules of order for your condo meeting. Now that said, Robert's rules are also completely acceptable and can be used during your condo meeting. However, they were derived from a parliamentary system and we find they're often less in keeping with the needs of a condo meeting. But ultimately, the decision as to what rules to adopt lies with the condo corporation and with the chair of your given meeting. In some rare cases, your corporation may have passed a bylaw setting out which rules of order must be used, so make sure to check your documents beforehand. So once we have our rules of order in place and understand how to use them, we want to consider whether or not it will be necessary to set and go over rules of conduct at the beginning of the meeting. These ground rules set the framework for people to behave reasonably at the meeting, they set expectations for engagement and explain how the chair will deal with unacceptable behavior or disruption during the meeting. We find it's often a good idea to brainstorm appropriate rules if you anticipate having either difficult issues or difficult individuals at your meeting. These ground rules are then recited by the chair at the beginning of the meeting to make sure that everyone understands um, how the meeting is going to be conducted. So some good rules of conduct that we often see are not to speak until you're recognized by the chair. Confirmation that mudslinging is not appropriate. Personal attacks won't be permitted. We want to make sure we keep dialogue respectful at all times. To confirm that everyone will have a reasonable chance to speak and to give your name and unit number when you're called upon by the chair. 
And you can also use this opportunity to go over the process that you as chair will follow in the event that an individual is being belligerent. So for example, you can mute them at a virtual meeting or ask them to sit down if you're in person. If the behavior continues, you can advise that you will be removing them from the meeting. Nancy often uses what we call a three strike rule, which she can explain if you ask next time you run into her. So we have a rules of order, setting up our framework for the meeting. We've opened the meeting and explained the ground rules. So now it's time to hold our vote. And when we're dealing with ballots and voting, what are the things we need to watch for? One of the tricky areas that we can see cause confusion is when dealing with deferred voting. And Cheryl kind of touched on this in her previous presentation, and we're gonna go into a little bit more detail about it now. So as Cheryl mentioned, in many cases when filling out your proxy, an owner is gonna cast their vote for or against a specific item on their proxy form. However, in certain cases, an owner will give their proxy holder the authority to vote on their behalf live during the meeting. This is what we call a deferred vote. When planning your meeting, you need to ensure that you have a system in place to deal with these deferred votes. If you're using an online platform like Get Quorum, there's a feature that allows you to weigh votes in advance. So if there's a proxy holder who has authority to cast a vote for three units, you could weigh their vote accordingly. If you're having an in-person meeting, you would give the proxy holder a certain number of ballots to cast on behalf of the units who have granted authority to them. In most cases, those proxy holders are likely gonna vote all their proxies in the same way as a block. However, it's important to think about a procedure if the individual wishes to vote them differently, specifically during virtual meetings. So for example, I've been granted authority to vote on a new bylaw on behalf of both Nancy and David as their proxy holder. I'm also an owner and I'm going to be casting my own vote as well. Now, I really love the bylaw and I know David really loves the bylaw, but Nancy's told me she really does not like the bylaw and does not want me to vote in favor of it when I cast her vote. So I need to be able to cast two votes in favor of the bylaw on behalf of David and I, and one vote against on behalf of Nancy. So you need to make sure you have a system for that to ensure that you're allowing proxy holders to vote differently on their deferred votes. If necessary, we recommend that you get in touch with them at the beginning of the meeting to see if they're voting their proxies in a block or whether they might need separate links to cast multiple votes. Just something to think about and to have a procedure in mind in case it comes up at your meeting. The next tricky thing we see come up often is voting on amendments to proposed rules or bylaws during the meeting. Sometimes a rule or bylaw will be presented at the meeting and an owner wishes to make an amendment to the wording of the bylaw or rule. You'll first need to entertain a motion to consider the amendment. If the motion passes, you will then put the particular amendment to a vote of the owners at the meeting. Depending on the number and substance of the amendments, you can hold a vote on several amendments all at once or one at a time. Now, when we create a proxy for a meeting and when you are creating your proxies, you should include wording that specifies that an owner is voting for or against the rule or bylaw with or without amendment. And that wording with or without amendment is important. It means that regardless of any amendments that are passed during the meeting, the owner is voting either for or against passing the document. Now, if an amendment drastically changes the intent of the rule or bylaw being presented, you will want to consider whether it's fair and equitable to hold a final vote on that amended document at the meeting, or whether it makes more sense to circulate the amended rule or bylaw to the owners one more time to allow them to review the changes before holding a final vote. In some cases, that process will be required to ensure fairness to all owners. So we have a bylaw that we're voting on at our meeting, and someone has proposed an amendment to the wording of the bylaw. If you're having a virtual meeting, you need to consider how you're gonna hold these live votes during the meeting and be comfortable with that process. 
In person, you may or may not have people vote by a show of hands, or they may prefer secret ballot voting to protect their privacy on the amendment votes. For this reason, you want to make sure you show up with extra ballots and different colored paper so that you can hold these votes simply and on the fly, even if you're dealing with a vote on multiple unexpected amendments at your in-person meeting. So moving on from voting, we've submitted our ballots and now we need to count the votes. And that's where our scrutineers come in. Scrutineers should be independent and impartial and the procedure for appointing them will vary if we're dealing with virtual or an in-person meeting. In the case of a virtual meeting, we wanna have our scrutineers set out in advance in the meeting package. When we hold meetings, the scrutineers get quorum and DHA, which is confirmed in the meeting package as we work with get quorum as our voting platform and back office software. This lets owners know in advance who will be acting as scrutineer for the meeting subject to any objections. That way you know whether or not you will have issues appointing your scrutineer well before the meeting so that you can consider a backup process if objections are received and an alternative process is needed. During a live meeting, you're going to ask for volunteers and appoint individuals to act as your scrutineers with a motion. You'll want to make sure that they have a separate private area to count the votes and you want to advise them of their duty of confidentiality. We recommend having your scrutineering uh, report ready when you show up at the meeting. It should contain a confidentiality clause explaining that the scrutineers cannot release any information gained during their role as scrutineer, including the vote count or how people voted. We get people to sign that confidentiality clause and then they'll fill out the scrutineers report as they count the votes. There are different ways that the scrutineers can decide to perform a count, but in all cases, each scrutineer needs to be comfortable with the final numbers. So have your scrutineers sign off on the count and the scrutineers reports are held by the meeting chair. So that's all for me today. I'm gonna to turn it back to Nancy. Fabulous, Jess. And your topic or your talk is reminding me of my meeting toolbox. Back in the day when we were only doing in-person meetings, I had a box, it was beaten and battered, but it had every color piece of paper and extra ballots and extra scrutineers reports. and. Uh, I have two in-person meetings between now and December, so I'm going to have to find my meeting toolbox. And I can tell you on the three strikes, you're out rule, I only ever got to strike two. So if I see you guys, <laughs> if I see anybody at the November 3rd and 4th uh, CCI uh, in-person conference, ask me about the, the, uh, the one time we got to strike two. It's a good story. Thank you, Jess. Thanks, Dance. All right. Okay, folks, we're down to our last speaker of today, Emily. So Emily, you're going to take us through some of the final issues, and I think one of the most um, intriguing issues at times, some conflictual dialogue at meetings. So Emily, I'll go ahead and let you unmute yourself and I'll turn it over to you. Perfect, Nancy, thank you. Um, so yes, we've already touched uh, on, num on a number of things in relation to meetings and voting and all sorts of items like that. So today my three topics will be firstly talking about some tips that we have for chairing. Um, I'll also be talking about the different kinds of meetings and considerations that you might have for those meetings, such as board meetings and special meetings. So first, I'll start off by talking about the role of chairing. So when chairing, there are, of course, a number of tasks that you are responsible for throughout the meeting. One such task is managing and directing the question portion of the meetings. Many of you will have likely attended an AGM and will know that the question portion of the meetings can sometimes be challenging to navigate. One tip we have is on the importance of keeping the discussion on track, ensuring that the discussion does not stray from the issues at hand and that side discussions between owners are not taking place as uh, that is helpful to keep the meeting on track to avoid those side discussions. 
Now, as chair, you will also need to ensure that you provide an opportunity to all owners who wish to speak to do so. However, what's important to remember is that you'll also need to ensure that owners who are not interrupting each other, that owners are not interrupting each other, and that one person speaks at a time. This can sometimes be tricky when you have many hands raised at once for questions that many people want to comment on. So one approach that you might consider taking is to have only one question per owner at a time. And for those who have multiple questions to, re to rejoin the line and wait their turn to ask their second or third question. In terms of the questions, the types of questions that owners might ask during the meeting, as chair, you'll need to be sure that all questions are related to the affairs of the condo corporation as a whole. This means that there are to be no discussions uh, with respect to unit specific questions. If unit specific questions or issues do arise, owners should be advised to reach out to their property managers separately to have those issues resolved. Similarly, there should also be no questions related to issues which are at the time of the meeting the subject of litigation. For instance, if an owner has commenced a claim against the corporation, the chair will want to ensure that there is no discussion on the matter that is before the courts, and this is to avoid potential prejudicing of the owner or the corporation. If your meeting is virtual, as chair, you may have the ability to mute attendees if need be. This, of course, should only be used when necessary. For instance, as Jessica was mentioning previously, but this is an example in the virtual setting, if an owner is refusing to follow your directions and not discuss, uh, to not discuss unit-specific questions, you may consider the three-strike rule um, and providing them an opportunity to speak about general issues that are really in relation to the condominium. And if they continue to, continue to disregard your, uh, your direction, you could consider muting them or removing them from the meeting if need be. But of course, keeping in mind that all owners should be provided an opportunity to speak. During the question period, at some point, the discussion may start to get repetitive. This is understandable as owners like to ensure that their comments are noted during the meeting. However, it could cause frustration at the meeting if things are not progressing. So as chair, one other thing to be um, aware of is to note when it's important or when it's appropriate to move the meeting forward from the current discussion. Sometimes emotions can run high when contentious issues are discussed during a meeting, whether this is virtual or in person. So in these situations, it is helpful to remind owners to direct their questions to the chair so there's no back and forth discussion between the owners and the chair can have better control of the meeting overall. So that's sort of um, our tips and tricks on chairing, especially in relation to managing question periods. Now I'll move on to my second topic, which is dealing with conflicts of interest during board meetings. Now it's not uncommon, particularly in a small condo community for directories to be involved in some capacity with businesses that the corporation might engage in um, in terms of contracts and transactions. The potential for conflicts of interest may be greater in some circumstances and less in others. However, there's always a possibility that they could arise. A conflict of interest is a situation where a person has the ability to obtain personal benefit, whether directly or indirectly, from a decision made in their official capacity as director. Where a conflict of interest does arise, this does not terminate the director's ability to continue on the board. What is required, though, is that the conflict is disclosed and that the director in question removes themselves from all discussion and decision making on topics where the conflict exists. This is in accordance with Section 37 of the Condo Act, 
which sets out the director's duty to act honestly, in good faith, and in the best interests of the corporation and owners. This duty cannot be fulfilled if the director is acting for personal benefit or even perceived to be acting for personal benefit. Section 40 of the Act sets out the duty to disclose conflicts, the timing for when conflicts should be disclosed, and also specific requirements for conflict disclosure where interest where the interest relates to purchase of property. The bottom line is that conflict of interest should be disclosed as early as possible so that they can be addressed appropriately. And where a conflict of interest is identified, the director in question should recuse themselves from any discussions relating to the subject. This means physically leaving the room or the virtual meeting as that director would not be entitled to participate in discussions or vote on matters to which the conflict of interest relates. The board should also ensure that the, the disclosure of conflicts and director recusal is recorded in the board meeting minutes. Now, failing to properly disclose a conflict of interest could result in the contract or transaction to which the conflict relates being set aside or and or requiring the director to account to the corporation for any personal profit or gain. Ultimately, owners may also lose confidence in that director's ability to carry out their duties on the board, which in some cases could lead to a requisitioned meeting for the director's removal. On the other hand, if the director inadvertently failed to disclose a conflict of interest, section 40, subsection eight, offers a final opportunity to avoid having to account to the corporation and owners for any profit or gain that the director has obtained or having the contract transactions set aside. Section 40, sub eight, allows the owners to confirm and validate the contract or transaction in question that is subject to the conflict at a meeting of owners. During a meeting under this provision, the director must set out the nature of their conflict and they must show that they have acted honestly and in good faith. And at least two thirds of the owners at that meeting must vote in favor of approving the contract or transaction in question. Generally speaking, it is of course best to follow the required steps to disclose a conflict of interest early so as to avoid the need for such a meeting. Um, now, a director's duty to disclose conflicts of interest arises from the very start when they put their candidacy forward at an AGM. Typically, having a conflict of interest does not disqualify an individual from being eligible to be a director. However, it is also important to double check bylaws of your corporation to ensure that the nature of the particular conflict does not disqualify that candidate. For example, the bylaws may state that where the individual has commenced a claim against the corporation, which would be a conflict of interest, that they are not eligible to serve on the board. The bylaws will of course be different for each condominium, so it's important to check those. Lastly, on this topic, it is important to remember that the duty of disclosure is ongoing. So all directors should be mindful of this throughout the term, throughout their term on the board. Now moving to my last topic of discussion, special meetings and what to watch for and the different considerations um, to be mindful of. So we're all aware of the typical meetings such as the AGM that happens every year. Sometimes, however, a condo may have a special meeting on a specific matter. One particular type of meeting to be mindful of is the requisitioned meeting. So this is a type of meeting that is governed by section 46 of the act. I know that there are proposed, I note that there are proposed changes to this section, uh, but they're currently not enforced. So the procedure to be followed is what is currently set out in the act at this time. A requisition meeting is simply one where an owner or a group of owners requests the board to call a meeting to discuss or vote on a particular topic. 
Common examples include uh, a meeting for the removal or replacement of a director and voting on a proposed rule. While owners have the ability to requisition a meeting, it is important to recognize that for matters that fall under the authority of the board, owners cannot overturn the decision of the board. For example, um, the issue of hiring a particular contractor. The board has the authority to make such hiring decisions, and the act does not require owners to approve those decisions. So while a meeting may be requisitioned to discuss that issue, there will be, there will be no binding vote of the owners. In terms of the procedure to call a requisition meeting, an owner who wishes to requisition a meeting needs to have the signatures of 15% of owners of voting units in the condo on the requisition. When the board receives the requisition, it is important to check the validity of the signatures, that they are from owners and not tenants, and that all owners who have signed are not in arrears. The requisition should set out topics to be discussed and needs to be personally delivered or delivered by registered mail to the president or the secretary, or it can be deposited at the corporation's address for service. The requisition can also indicate that certain topics be added to the agenda for the next AGM rather than calling a separate meeting on the specific topics. Once the requisition is received, reviewed, and deemed to be valid, the corporation will need to add the requisition item to the next AGM or call and hold the requisition meeting as appropriate within 35 days. And with respect to the procedure for uh, sending out notices, the preliminary notice of that meeting must be sent 15 days before the final notice, and the final notice should be sent 15 days before the actual meeting. Requisitioned meetings can often be contentious and may be difficult to manage. So this is where our tips and tricks for chairing can come into use. And of course, our firm also has great experience chairing all types of meetings and is always available to assist. Thank you. Fantastic, Emily, thank you so much. And requisition meetings, I think, are one of the most challenging aspects of getting everybody together and trying to move a, a community forward. And that is a pretty important role of the chair is to try and bring uh, a community, I, I jokingly say sometimes, from crisis to resolution in three hours or less. Uh, but it, while I say it as a joke, it is a truth. And when owners get together for a contentious issue or a difficult topic, we have to make sure we're all listening to each other. We're all working together to try and find a harmonious way forward. And that's what community living really is all about. So Emily, I think those, those tips about the role of the chair in a contentious meeting are really important to keep in mind, particularly in requisition settings. So thank you for that. All right, folks, that brings us to uh, just a couple of minutes before one o'clock. So thank you everybody for attending here today. We do try and respect everybody's time, keep ourselves between 12.30 and one o'clock and we did it again today. So again, thank you for attending. We hope this was helpful. Keep your eye out for the podcast coming in a couple of weeks with Cheryl's really helpful chart. And also keep your eye out for, your eye out for our next Condo Crunch in October and our Q&A session in the fall. So thank you so much for attending, everybody. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. Condopedia is brought to you by Davidson Hu Allen, a boutique condominium law firm servicing Eastern Ontario. You can find more about our firm on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, or on our website at davidsoncondolaw.ca. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended to provide legal opinion or advice, which cannot be given without knowing the facts of a specific situation. Use of this podcast does not establish a solicitor and client relationship. 
The intro and outro music is provided by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com.